All right, Liam O'Connor, you're on the vent, man. What's up? Hey, how you doing? Yeah, good, dude. Um, so I've been kind of we've been kicking this one around a little bit. I've been chasing it for a while, and uh, I think you're probably like the most interesting dude I know. Like uh, that is interesting. <laughs> I mean, like like your story, your background, your military stuff. Like, um, it sort of sets the stage, but then you're not what people would stereotype you as, and and I love that. And like we've had a lot of co- cool conversations about different stuff, and um, I thought we'd get you on, man, and kind of share some of those stories. So, um, just uh, start off where you're from, like your your background, all that stuff, and then we can talk about you know the Marine Corps and whatever else. But yeah, cool. Yeah, so uh, I was actually born in Hollywood, California. I grew up in uh, South El Monte and Basa La Puente. Uh, my young childhood life there. Uh, I tell the joke that I was one of only two white kids in my neighborhood, and the other one I made it out. But, um, you know, I, I had a, a pretty interesting uh, younger life where I got to spend part of my young life in, in the streets of L.A. And then shortly after, part of my young life growing up in the Sierra Nevada mountains, uh, just right outside of Yosemite National Park, on a horse ranch, 40-acre ho- horse ranch. Wow. So I, so I got kind of like the best of both worlds. You know, I learned, I learned the, obviously the street smarts, but I also learned the country smarts, too. Mm. So, and then, uh, you know, so I am, I am a California kid uh, by birth. Family hails mostly from Brooklyn, New York, and, and Canada and Ohio. So, but, uh, so that's just the basic young life. Yeah. Um, I, uh, let's see here. I, um, when I was growing up, you know, parents divorced when I was a very young teenager. Uh, pretty much had the decision made for me to stay with my father because he was the one who was the primary breadwinner. Yeah. And it wasn't much too long after that, that, you know, my father kicked me out of the house and I ended up being homeless for a couple of years. So you know, pretty much from the age of, of 14 to almost 16, uh, I was homeless in the country. Wow. And I think that was a kind of a benefit in a way because, you know, living in the country, you know, camping, hunting, hiking, fishing, all that good stuff. So I, I pretty much basically pitched a tent you know, up the side of the mountain about a mile and a half away from school, but I still went to school, still did everything I needed to do until I found out that, you know, my mom really had no problem with me because it was, you know, the poison was fed to me from my father that my mom had not, uh, didn't want to have anything to do with me. And so I never contacted her. And then as it turns out, you know, there wasn't really any kind of an issue there. It was just one parent playing the role with the other parent, you know, and using the kid as leverage. And then after a couple of years of being homeless, I ended up moving up with my mother in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm. And it was from there I pretty much, you know, kind of reseeded my life. And then uh, I moved out at an early age, uh, pretty much as soon as I turned about 16 and a half after I had my driver's license and got a little bit of established with some work. I moved out of the house with a, with a roommate and, and, you know, that way it kind of took the burden off my mother, you know, having to raise a, a growing boy who was eating her out of house at home, you yeah. know, from part. And then uh, went on with my life from there. I, I became an adult real quick, real quick. So um, during my time living up there, I lived in a town called Fairfield, which is situated right in between Sacramento and San Francisco. So Fairfield, Sassoon, Vacaville area is where I lived for a lot of years. And it was from that point, that town where I lived there, where I ended up uh, enlisting into the Marine Corps in 1995. Wow. And, and then there for the story pretty much progresses. 
Yeah. So dude, I didn't actually know. Um, so we actually on the vent page, I know you jump on sometimes. I didn't realize how extensive your, your early child, like your teenage years were. And I, you had a lot of thoughtful comments. We had made a post, um, it, it referenced some homelessness stuff and you had, you had made a post and a, and a comment that, um, got a lot of, got a lot of traction and it had a lot of heartfelt discussion going on. And, um, I was really happy, to, but I had no idea how deep that was for you. Yeah, you know, it, it, a lot of times, you know, and I mean, I'm like the perfect example of, you know, the stigma stereotype individual is, is, you know, we judge as people, you know, it's in our nature to judge by what we see and what we look at, you know, and, you know, some people make the comment that, you know, we don't look at things we don't want to look at. We only look at things we want to look at, you know, and that, that's, I think that's kind of individual. And I think that that's, uh, you know, that's, um, something that, you know, individual to the, to the actual individuals, we'll look at anything we really want to look at. Some people look at things that are nasty, something that people look at things that are beautiful. I tend to look at everything uh, to try to process it. And there is that stigma that if you're homeless, that, you know, you're just a drug addict or, you know, a low life piece of scum. And that isn't always the case. Yeah. You know, there are, there are, you know, people who have made that wrong decision and went the drug path and ended up homeless. And that's, a, that's kind of a sad state. But even in that, in that arena by itself, you know, you have to actually look at what the root cause is. And, and while it might be uh, someone's choice, and it is a choice to partake in, in some sort of recreational drug use, you're, you're taking that risk too. But there's also the genetic pre-markers for the individual that, that might decide just how addicted that person is going to get. Some people are addicts and some people are not. For myself, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I haven't drank alcohol for 13 and a half years. You know, and it, that's something I could say runs in my family, which it, it does and it did. But, you know, that in itself is, is inherent to an addictive personality. Mm -hmm. Someone who becomes addicted to drugs, I don't really think that they want to be addicted to drugs. I think that it's just the chemistry that changes in the body that requires them to want to consume more drugs. And then they end up in the position that they're in. Then there are the ones who are just pretty much, you know, victims of, of whatever happenstance comes across them, you know, poor housing market or whatever, losing jobs, can't maintain a job, might not have the education that an employer might require to do the job, but they can still do the job. And so they can't even get their foot in the door. There's a lot of different uh, variables that might take place. Yeah. My big thing is you just can't, you just can't judge from what you see at Facebook cover. You know, you have to be able to, you know, you can't judge the book by its cover. You know, you got to know the person. Yeah. So that post, man, it was, um, so, I have multiple people helping me out with the page and that post is everything I could have wanted it to be. I know it was like a, it's a, it's a sort of a, a provocative or kind of almost in a way a shitty post. Right. But we got people from both sides able to discuss it. And then now come to find out I'm here talking with you and, and it goes so much deeper than um, like for you, then maybe people would realize. And I kind of got that sense with some of your comments. And, and I, I was, uh, so homelessness in Salt Lake City for a long time was like a really, a really bad problem. And, you know, I was doing some Uber and side hustle and all this stuff and I would see it all the time. And I'm like, man, we're so much better than that. You know, um, for whatever reason, people are on the streets. I know a lot of the folks here, it was definitely a drug issue. Um, but there were, there were, you could tell, you know, when you work in law enforcement or any of that stuff, you, you start to learn to see people and you can tell kind of who, who's there um, because of drugs or who's there because of other stuff. And um, so that's an issue. It's, it's definitely a thing that um, it, in this country, it's just not a problem I feel like we should have, uh, yet we do. And 
um, like I said, man, the discussion that you created on that post was pretty inspiring, actually. I, it meant a lot to me, actually. I mean, to learn and to see it from both sides, you know? You know, my eyes got a little bit open, and I'm going to backtrack on a story here when it comes to something like homelessness because of poverty, for instance. Yeah. So back in, I don't want to say, it was like 2011, 2012, my wife and I had the opportunity to go and visit India. Uh, yeah, so uh, the type of people we are, my wife and I, usually when we travel, we don't do the, the standard tourist type of travel. We usually go to places that are, that are not tourist attractions. We go to places where it's, it's actually part of the country so we can learn from the country and see what they are at their base level. So when we went to India, and, and just a little side note of information on my wife as a master yoga instructor, she's been in the fitness industry her whole life. You know, we used to own this, the largest yoga studio in Southern California. And she's, she's a high-level internationally known yoga instructor, and she's been doing it for decades. Um, so part of our trip to India was to experience, you know, a yoga culture because, you know, it originates in, in different parts of India. So we went to Delhi, old Delhi. And, and we started our vacation there, so much to the point to where we didn't even reserve a hotel. We just flew in country and walked around until we found a place that was like in the middle of Old Delhi. And so long story short, while we were in Old Delhi, Old Delhi and then during the time that we spent in India, which included uh, taking a train ride into a, a different part of the country, into Haridwar, to go up into Rishikesh, which is at the base of the, 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 base of the uh, Himalayas, Radhanji's River, you know, we got to see a level of poverty that I, I couldn't even imagine was even possible. Mm. I mean, we, there, there was people, families, husbands, wives with kids that were literally living in the gutter. And the water that's running down the gutter is, is like about as black as molasses. And they're, you know, washing their, their clothes, brushing their teeth, you know, and they're in the river, they're in the water. And, and not only are they in the river, there's dead bodies floating down the river. You know, there's people who live in these fields that are so poor that they actually make their houses, their huts out of cow shit. You know, they take the cow shit and they, they mold it into these big discs, you know, that are about 16, 18 inches wide. And they use that for a fuel source. And they also use that as a way to make their hut to live in. Wow. And I mean... You know, I made the comment, I was like, man, that's kind of a shit job. And then as we look closer, you know, it was an instant judgment. I'm like, as close, we're like, man, that's not even a job. That's just what they have. And so, you know, poverty in itself, it sucks. You know, we're not the only country that has poverty. And I think that there could be a lot done on, on a social level to help uh, stop the poverty from happening. But there is also that stigma that causes the large problem of why we can't get out of that, you know, proverbial hole of how we're in these poverty levels, you know, especially in the United States. We have a lot of homeless people. We have a shit ton of homeless veterans, and there really is no reason for it. But, I mean, if you think of it yourself, you know, and I, and I used to be a business owner of several businesses. You know, my family used to be business owners and, thing, and things like that is that we as human beings, you know, we're so judgmental that the person who walks in the door and, and is looking for a job, the first thing we're doing is looking them up and down, you know, instead of like looking at their soul to try to figure out whether or not they're, you know, do we want to give that person a job? And I'm thankful that there are countries that are out there that go past that judgment and past that stigma and they'll give jobs to those who actually need it. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, how, how can someone who's homeless, doesn't have anything, penny to their name, it, they can't, you know, it's not practical for them to, to, sh to shit, shower, shave and throw a suit on, a three-piece suit 
and jump on the internet now because now you can't take paper applications into a business to get a job and apply for a job and then wait for a month to two months to six months to however long it takes for the, the, the company to process the application then get called in for an interview. It's just almost non-existent and impossible. Mm. It, you know, the, the, the jobs that are available, you know, and you see it every day is panhandling. And that's the only outlet now. Right. Uh, again, going back to like that post, you know, I was just, you know, sometimes and having so many, you know, especially Marine Corps brothers and sisters that are out there. I mean, the, the vast majority of my friends on Facebook are either uh, people that my wife and I know collectively or people that I've served with, yeah. you know, and, and you know, as well as I do being a Marine is that we come from all walks of life and we have all different backgrounds. We have all different, you know, morals and cultural differences and this, that, and the other. And, and, you know, and so we, when I see something like that, when a brother or a sister puts something up on, on Facebook and makes a post, you know, I, I try to, I try to look at it, you know, and say, well, yeah, they're just, you know, fucking around and, and, you know, making a joke or something. But when someone makes a comment and, and I don't want to like throw anybody under the bus or say that anybody was wrong, I just do my very best to, to kind of educate, especially if I have true knowledge of the situation. Having been homeless for a couple of years, I do have that knowledge. Yeah. Is it different? Yeah, it's different. I can tell you right now, it was a lot different to live in the country and I was able to pitch a tent and go hunting, you know, and fishing. Did I have to steal food sometimes? Yeah, I did. You know, did I have to sleep inside the post office in the wintertime because, you know, there was six feet of snow on the ground and I would have froze to death outside? Yeah, it's true. But it is a little bit different than being homeless in the streets of San Francisco or on Skid Row in LA, you know, or up in Salt Lake City, you know. So I think I kind of look at it as a way as, as I never want to be um, – I don't want to be judgmental of the person who makes a post. I don't want to be judgmental or, or try to debate to the point where I think that anybody else is at fault. It's more of, hey, let's take a look at this from a broader scope, you know, a broader brushstroke, and let's educate ourselves a little bit more on, on what we're actually looking at. Yeah, there's not a lot of people doing that anymore, though, bud. That's what's yeah. surprising and so so awesome when when someone does come along, um, and 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 that that post and and that discussion is what we you know, we want the vent to be, uh, we're not going to get it every time, but when it happens, uh, it's just, it's really impressive. And, and then obviously like, I, I know you, I don't know everything about you, but I know you and to see you engaging and, and helping us, you know, um, facilitate some of that discussion was pretty awesome. So tell me, tell me you joined the Marine Corps in 95. You're a, you predate me big time, but, uh, we share some, we share some common, some common stuff, but, um, tell me a little bit about that. And then, um, obviously MP instructor, drill instructor, all that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, here's the, the funny thing about it is I actually, um, uh, when I moved up with my mother, you know, she, uh, my family used to own a chain of video stores back before Blockbuster Video ever came out, you know, so we actually had a chain of video stores called the Video Station. First one was open in the, in the early 70s in Los Angeles and kind of spread from there. I think we had nine, nine actual uh, locations. And part of my mother's divorce decree is she got the location that was nestled right outside of the main gate at Travis Air Force Base in Fairfield. So my first actual job, you know, growing up was like helping out around the video stores. And then when I ended up moving up with there, she actually put me on the payroll and, and I was working for her. It wasn't too long after that growing up that I noticed that I needed to make a little bit more money. And uh, my best friend at the time, his father, his stepfather owned a painting company that held the contracts to paint base housing at Travis Air Force Base, Maryland Naval Base, and Skaggs Island Naval Base. 
So I got on that gig and for about seven or eight years painting houses. I made pretty good money. I made about $35 an hour when I was like 17 years old. You know, back then that was, that was some good coin. But it was like Happy Days reruns. It was the same thing over and over and over again. And it was kind of driving me up the wall. And so I, I thought about what my options would be. And so um, I, I wanted to see what was out there. And so I said, well, you know, dad was a Marine, uncle was a Marine. Maybe I'll go talk to the Marine recruiter. I went and go into security forces you know, and, and be stationed on a Mardet on a ship. Uh, and so I was going to join when I was 17. My mom was, was you know, one to sign the paperwork to send me off at 17. So I went in the recruiting station. And uh, at that time, for some reason, security forces was such a sought after MOS that they had no school seats for like two years straight. At least that's what I was told. Um, but of course, you know, there's, you know, regular infantry and there's, you know, you could be a cook, you know, because we had the cook MOS open huge back then. And and I was like, nah, I was pretty much set in my ways and you know, thank you very much. I'll, I'll come back another time. And so a couple more years passed. I kept doing the painting thing. And then I thought about moving into law enforcement because my whole family were cops. You know, my dad was a cop. You know, cousins were cops. You know, I got a cousin who's retired Anaheim PD, another cousin who's retired Anaheim PD, you know, another cousin who's retired LAPD and all that shit. And so law enforcement's big in the family. My mom was a reserve deputy sheriff from Madera County Sheriff. So was my dad. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do the law enforcement route. So there were not a lot of agencies hiring in that Fairfield area. So I self-sponsored to Napa Police Academy in 1993. I graduated in the top 10% of my class. And lo and behold, like right when everything came to fruition, the Rodney King incident happened in L.A. And so, you know, being in a different political state of mind back then, especially all the agencies that I tried to hire with were like, uh, so sorry, we're not going to hire a 21-year-old white guy with everything that's going on right now. And I mean, there was no political correctness. It was pretty much, hey, sorry, uh, come back in a couple of years when all this blows over, but we're not hiring white cops. And I couldn't even get into LAPD. Squirt off the charts on their test, physical, everything like that. Chief's interview, no, sorry, we're not hiring white cops. I'm like, this is LAPD. Uh, California Highway Patrol, same thing. Um, Sassoon Police Department, Fairfield Police Department, all of them. So I had a buddy that I went to the academy with who was actually a lieutenant with Grant School, uh, School District Police Department in Sacramento. And he just made the comments like, hey, you know, maybe you should just join the military for four years and then get out after this all blows over and then, you know, anybody will hire you. And so I thought about it. And at the same time, I was, uh, again, heavily involved in martial arts. And my martial arts teacher was kind of like my surrogate father. And he was a retired Air Force he made pretty much the same suggestion. He's like, you know, if you, if, if you want to get yourself set on a good path, join the military. And so, you know, like I said, after being 17, some years had passed. So I went back into the recruiting office when I was 23, a little bit older, a little bit more wise. I was actually going to give every service the opportunity to see what they can offer me. And this is a no joke, no shit story. So I went into the recruiting station on a mall in Fairfield and I walked into the Navy recruiting office and I asked the question, I'll join the military. What can you offer me? You know, and they gave me a standard gouge, you know, 30,000, you know, sail around the world, you know, all that good shit. Okay. I went to the army, pretty much the same thing. $30,000 for college, you know, get to see the world, you know, be all you can be and all that shit. Air force, same thing. And this is not a joke. I walked into the Marine Corps recruiting office and obviously there were different recruiters there at the time. And when I walked in, there was two staff sergeants sitting in the office and they both kind of looked at me and I said, good afternoon. And they're like, what can we do for you? And I said, well, I just wanted to see what the Marine Corps has to offer me. And no shit, that staff sergeant stood up and flipped his desk 
and started screaming, saying, it isn't about what the Marine Corps can fucking offer you. It's about what you can offer the Marine Corps. Now get the fuck out of here and don't come back until you set yourself straight. I had like a little epiphany for a second. I was like, holy shit. I was like, was that, that <laughs> you know, was that my dad freaking talking to me or something, you know, because I was raised really strict. And so I, I left the recruiting office. And I went and gathered myself. It had been a while before I'd been screaming and yelled out like that. And I thought to myself, you know, I had this like little memory in the back of my head of, of you know, the old John F. Kennedy speech of ask not what your country can do for you and what you can do for your country. And I was like, you know, that makes sense. It isn't about what you guys are going to give to me. It's about what I'm going to do to serve my country. Why am I even walking in here anyway if I'm not here, you know, for a, a level of selfless service? You know, sorry to use one of the Army's core values. But, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I need to be selfless in my service and I need to be here for a reason. And it actually gave me a, a minute to think and say, you know, why is it that I'm going to come and join the military, voluntary enlistment into the military? And, and in my mind, I'm like, you know, well, to protect those who can't protect themselves. That was the big thing to, you know, fight against tyranny and, and oppression, the things that I brought up with when I was young, you know. And, 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 you know, if the nation needs to call on me for service and sacrifice, well, then I'm here to do that. And, of course, I was thinking, yeah, I'll do the four years, you know, get out and be a regular street cop. And so I went through the whole process. Um, and at that time, and here's another interesting side note, I was a high school dropout. So I, uh, uh, during my junior year, uh, coming from a high school, a Yosemite High School in Oakhurst, which had like a graduating class of like 20, if that, to Fairfield High School, which had a student population over 3,000. The classrooms were overcrowded, so I wasn't getting a solid education. Teachers would openly, openly tell you, yeah, we don't have time to teach you how to do this, this formula for algebra, so you're just going to have to wing it. So I'm like, you know what? I'm making $35 an hour paying houses. I'm going to drop out of school because it doesn't make a difference. But I didn't just drop out and be a dropout. I ended up doing the GED thing. And then when I tried to get into the Marine Corps, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but you can't join the Marine Corps with a GED. You have to have a high school diploma. Mm-hmm. So they're saying, yeah, you've got to get a high school diploma. So I went back to night school. I had one class to do, even though I dropped out my junior year. Um, so I had one economics class to take, and so I ended up getting my high school diploma anyway. So I guess you could say I was a high school dropout, but technically I'm not because I do have a high school diploma. And then so uh, I had never taken the ASVAB. I scored off the charts with the ASVAB test. They said I can do any MOS that I wanted to, and they're like, wouldn't you like to do signals intelligence? And I'm like, I have no idea what that is. No, I want to be military police because I wanted to do the law enforcement things. So I, I figured that that would set me up for being a civilian cop. In hindsight, I should have went signals intelligence. <laughs> You know, but, uh, you know, we all, we don't really have, I didn't have a support system. So I had no one in my corner. I didn't have anybody saying, Hey, yeah, you, are you really thinking about these, 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 uh, choices that you're making? So long story short, I had to wait, uh, eight or nine months for school seats. I was in the delayed entry program, but I got guaranteed private first class, you know, upon graduation, um, all that good stuff. And I went to boot camp, San Diego. I was uh, first recruit training battalion platoon, eleven twenty one. Uh, Alpha Company, lead company, lead platoon. Um, boot camp was interesting. There was five drill instructors on my team, you know, when I was a recruit. Um, so there was no way to get away with anything. We were pretty much watched like hawks all day long, all night long. Um, uh, boot camp to me wasn't difficult. The, phys- the mental part wasn't. The physical part wasn't really that difficult to me. I think the police academy I went to was a little bit tougher physically. Um, but I was 23 years old when I went in. So I was, I was one of two of the oldest recruits in the platoon. Um, pretty much held a recruit billet uh, between guide and squad leader the whole time through. And I, when we graduated, I was the, the squad squad leader. So, um, you know, it was, it was a good experience. 
it was it was fun for me, and it was it was it was the beginning of that you know that obvious that esprit de corps brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then from there, you know, we did the whole uh, standard you know Marine combat training at Camp Pendleton. Lived in the Quonset huts. Um, I don't know if they still do in the Quonset huts anymore up at the School of Infantry or whatever, but uh, I did that, and then um, from there went to Fort uh, Fort McClellan, Alabama, for MP school. I was class seventeen ninety five. My platoon sergeant was Staff Sergeant Brett Villarubia. Uh, he was a solo platoon sergeant for our platoon. Um, and that's where I, you know, that's where the real solidarity hit with, uh, you know, especially with the MP brothers and sisters, you know, in our, in our, in our platoon, many of which that I, you know, I still talk to this day, you know, to this day. Yeah, so uh, see what else. I was honor graduate from MP school, so I was number one in the class. Uh, and then dude, here comes my first experience of the big green weenie. So, hey, congratulations on a graduate. You get to choose East Coast, West Coast, overseas duty station. I'm like, oh, yeah, I want to go to Japan, see the world, right? Graduation day, meritorious Lance Corporal on the stage. Got handed my diploma and my orders. Welcome to Marine Corps Air Station, El Toro, Santa Ana, California. I'm like, fuck, I'm from L.A., man. I'm like 20 minutes from home. Yeah. Like, Jesus Christ, are you serious? Spent a couple of years at El Toro. I, I ended up uh, getting meritorious corporal when I was there. Um, and then volunteered, uh, here's the cool thing is, is my recruiter, you know, I ended up having a recruiter that switched out and I got an, I got this one guy, he was infantry. I couldn't remember his name because I only saw him for a very short period of time, but he's like, before I left, he gave me all the MB, uh, MBST books and he gave me everything I needed to, to look at, you know, all the, 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 all the knowledge that I needed to study before I went to prepare myself. And he said, if I can give you any piece of information, he's like, volunteer for everything. He's like, I don't care what it is, just volunteer for it. And so that's what I did. And I remember my, uh, our, our desk sergeant, he was kind of like a permanent desk sergeant at the time, uh, Corporal Ron Bassana. He's on Facebook. He's always commenting on a lot of stuff. But he was like, I used to call him the grand old corporal of the Marine Corps because he was like, oh, for fucking forever. Because he, he did something wrong, like drove a vehicle into the side of the building or some shit. I don't remember. <laughs> but, um, but every time he would come out for our briefings, he would say, yeah, I need a volunteer. And I'd, I'd throw my hand up. And he'd be like, all right, you know, you're going to go do this. You know, and every time there was a volunteer. And, and it was, sometimes there were some shit duties, you know, and I, I really didn't care. I just kept volunteering for everything. And then, then I started to notice that I was getting the opportunity to go to different schools, you know, hazmat school and things like that, you know, as, as a young man's corporal. And then, you know, then the cool shit came around, you know, hey, we need a volunteer. I'll volunteer. You don't even know what it is, O'Connor. Yeah, well, I'll take it anyway. Okay, well, you're going to, you're going to, you know, be the VIP guard for Cindy Crawford when she comes here. Oh, okay, cool. You know, right. You're gonna you're gonna guard you know uh, senator you know this senator when he comes or that senator. Are you gonna go guard the freaking uh, you know AC-130 gunship that's loaded up out on the flight line that's fully loaded from the Air Force and you can't leave it unguarded? You know, and then I go out there and guard it and they fucking forgive me for a day and a half and shit. You know, so you know cool things like that. But I ended up volunteering to go to Miramar uh, when it was still a naval air station down there, top gun base. We took over that installation in October 97. I think I went down there in April of 97, volunteered to go down there because I heard how great San Diego is. And other than going to boot camp there, which you don't see shit when you're there except for blow that plane out of the sky and freaking barracks and scrubbing the deck and shit. So I ended up going to Miramar, which I thought was like the supposed to be the best thing since sliced bread. And I fucking hate San Diego. I mean, it's a beautiful place and everything, but I just can't stand San Diego. But uh, Got to take over the base in the Navy, did a lot of good things there. And um, I'm sorry for running my trap so long. But uh, what ended up happening there is I was there for a few years and I got the opportunity again to go to Japan. Orders came through from the monitor saying, hey, you're going to go. Oh, great. And at the same, the um, schoolhouse came through. 
to search for instructors for MP school. And they checked all the sergeants there, and I was the only one who had the qualifications to go, you know, expert rifle, expert pistol, first class PFT, all that bullshit, and then, you know, having teaching experience and this, that, and the other. And so they're like, great, you want to come be an instructor at MP school? And so I was kind of torn, so I was like, shit, man, when am I ever going to get to Japan? Yeah. <laughs> and so I talked to my captain was kind of a namesake uh, at the time, Captain Daniel O'Connor. He was my, he was my operations officer. I think he retired. Yeah, he retired as a major. And I asked him, sir, I said, sir, you know, uh, you know, what should I do? Be there. He's like, police school. And he's like, once they offer it to you, if you, if you, if you toss that one away, you'll never get it. And I was like, well, I took his advice. And so I ended up going to MP schools. So I went out to uh, Fort Leonard Wood in the year 2000. So I think it was right around April or May 2000 when I headed out there. Just got done with a sergeant's course at, at 29 Palms. I love that place too. Um, and so I headed out there uh, and that is pretty much where I discovered and, and realized just how tight uh, a small unit can be mm-hmm. that you know, wasn't developed like under the fire of combat was our operations team. So military police operations, you know, and just to name some of, some of the guys right off the bat, you know, uh, Sergeant Major J.J. Vondros, you know, James Vondros, he ended up retiring as Sergeant Major. He was one of my fellow instructors there. Battery um, uh, Sergeant Jason Taylor, you know, he was a fellow instructor there, you know. So you know, there, there's, you know, our, our office chief, Mass Sergeant, Maury Spaulding, Bud Spaulding, you know, uh, Staff Sergeant Mike Wazlowski. These were all fellow uh, instructors that were with me in MP school. Um, and I know you were an instructor as well, weren't you? At, yeah, at, I was. Some, some of those guys actually were instructors still when I went through as a student. And then, and then yeah. I had to come back and met some of these guys post me being an instructor. I mean, a lot of things have changed, but yeah. Um, you're right, man. I, we were super, as a core of instructors, we were super tight, man. That's not anything, that hasn't changed. Yeah, that was one of the things that I really enjoyed about it is, is you know, Mike Tackett, you know, he, he was he always the best man at his wedding, you know, between him and Amy. And we... You know, our whole group, it was like almost every night, you know, Jeremy Swindle, you know. Um, yeah, all you those know, guys were still there when I was a student. I, yeah. all those. I mean, Staff Sergeant Higgins was a fucking Staff Sergeant. Now he's the CEO. He's the major of the detachment now. Yeah, so do you know Do you know why a lot of these guys were, were stuck? They, get, they must have – you were probably close to the tail end of your tour there, but a lot of them got caught in stop, loss, stop, move. So they were – Yeah, see, that's, that was part of that. Yeah, they were riding like their fourth and fifth year, some of them as instructors. It was crazy. Yeah, definitely. So I was there when the stop loss hit because I was actually doing color guard when 9-11 hit. I was doing color guard for some retired colonel out at Walmart Distribution Center somewhere in Bumblefuck, Missouri. But, uh, you know, that's what happened is there were some of us that were senior. We were there for a few years already. So we started itching, you know, like, hey, we're monitor. Like, can you shoot us out the 2nd MP battalion so we can go? And stop loss hit, and, and no, you ain't going nowhere. And then they modified it later on down the line and said, well, you can leave if you've been there for at least three years, but you'll have to do a B-billet, special duty assignment. And that's when I, I made the decision, well, I'm not going to be a recruiter. I have no desire to do that whatsoever because I heard nothing but horror stories of, you know, people rolling donuts and shit, and they can't keep, you know, they get an adverse fit for not recruiting people. And I just wasn't, my, wasn't in my wheelhouse. So I, I, I put in my paperwork to be a drone instructor, you know, and I had to go through all the screening for that. And so that's the route that I took from Leonard Wood. I left Leonard Wood. Uh, I left in end of December 2003. I went out about two weeks early to San Diego. I ended up with an old brother of mine. He, uh, he actually worked on one of my platoons at Miramar uh, in operations on patrol. He was a PFC at the time. His name is Zach Payton. And he, Zach went NCIS, so he's an NCIS. And so when I went back out there, we connected. And he's like, hey, you know, you've 
but you know, his wife and him, I guess, were getting a divorce and he needed a roommate. So I was technically going to be his roommate when I got done uh, with DA school. The long story short, so I ended up going through DI school. I was uh, class 2TAC, uh, 2TAC 04. DI school was a trip, man, because, you know, so here's the thing, you know, and you know this being an instructor at MP school. So, you know, you go through all the formal school instruction course, you know, you go through all that shit. And, and, and when I got to MP school, you know, I did a lot of changes. You know, I got permission from, from operations to, uh, to rewrite a lot of the curriculum and to bring in certain things. Like we didn't have EVOC. I was the first person to bring EVOC in. You know, I got the instructors to come in from NHTSA and the Department of the Navy to do all the instructor certification for the EVOC program. So I did a lot of changes based off of the things that I was seeing on the road and, and where we were deficient in, you know, as MPs just coming straight from the schoolhouse and fleet. So long story short, you know, I, I got to make a lot of these changes. I got to put my hand into the pot and everything and develop all this instructor experience. And uh, kind of a, an interesting side note is, is you know, the Army uh, kept holding all these boards on the base, you know, all these like uh, – not necessarily like meritorious promotion boards, but they would do like their instructor boards, you know, like who's the best instructor of the quarter, you know, you know, service member of the quarter, service member of the year. And, and so uh, Marine Corps detachment decided to start sending up, you know, their high speed instructor for this. And uh, it was kind of funny for a while there between um, myself and, and Vondras and Shane Dillon, we would kind of, we were like the trifecta. We kept going up for these boards and winning them all. And it got to the point to where we got so used to learning how the Army did their boards. We would win all the Marine Corps detachment boards, and then we would go up for the Army boards, and we would just clean house. And coming in through the main gate at Leonardwood, you had all those signs out there that would say, you know, you know, welcome to Fort Leonardwood, you know, drill sergeant of the quarter, drill sergeant of the year, service member of the year. I had all the signs that were not specifically Army-specific. And I had my own parking place at the commissary, my own parking place at the exchange. You know, I want everything to include their top instructor of the year. I had the sergeant made the army fly in to give me a close crap, you know, talk to the commandant on the phone. You know, so it's pretty cool, you know, because the biggest thing is, 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 is kind of funny is they'd go up and, you know, award you with your ARCOM, you know, and they'd stop the whole base and bring you into the, the general's theater, you know, the base theater, whatever. And you got thousands of soldiers in there. And the soldier goes up and gets this award, you know, and they're like, hey, you know, Congratulations. Yeah, you know, I worked real hard, you know, and I won this board, you know, and I'm just so proud of myself and this, that, and the other. And, and pretty much kind of like the same script that all these soldiers would say. And then, and then, you know, they came up and awarded me my award. And I'd say, you know what? I was like, freaking hoorah, Marine Corps detachment is on this motherfucker. You know, we took it all. So it's like, you know, I just, you know, I just had to rub that shit in their face a little bit, you know, because I always looked at it, it wasn't me. You know, it was it was a team effort because, you know, Vondras and Dylan, you know, and everyone in the office and operations, you know, we would we would help each other study, help each other prepare. And we just started sweeping shit. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Circling back around, going to DI school, having all this experience, being an MP instructor, you know, I got to see a completely different world. You know, drone surgery school was supposed to be the premier leadership school. Only the top 10 percent of the Marine Corps can become a drill instructor. And it is a high attrition rate school. I mean, we started with a shitload of Marines and we lost more than half of them you know, before we, before we hit graduation. And, and it was pretty sad, you know, because you, you'd see staff sergeants and fucking gunnery sergeants showing up for DI school who couldn't do three pull-ups, you know? And I'm like, how the fuck did you even get here, you know, to come to the school? Right. Um, That's still going. I, I can tell you, yeah, I mean, it, it has to be, but I can tell you right now that the DI school is not the premier leadership school. It is, you know, I was, uh, as a curriculum developer and as a master, a certified master instructor, I was ripping these drill instructor instructors apart when they're on the podium. I'm just like, yeah, give me a critique sheet. Let me teach you what you need to do because you're not that great. 
Mm-hmm. You know, campaign cover, good on you. You already went through and did that rite of passage. But one of the biggest uh, things that, that I can say about being a drill instructor, it's it's definitely one of those embrace the suck MOSs. Um, when we graduated, there was three of us from our class that were assigned to Kilo Company, third recruit training battalion. Um, they took the biggest ones from the class. We were all the biggest guys. And they sent us over to Kilo. Uh, at the time, First Sergeant Terry Hoskins was our company first sergeant. He ended up becoming battalion sergeant major for third battalion. Great, great, great first sergeant, great sergeant major. Um, dude was freaking like, one of the best ever. But uh, when I graduated, you get that automatic 30 days of basket lead because you're about to be deployed at MCRD San Diego. Mm-hmm. I picked up with Kilo. I went and checked in literally the day of graduation, walked across the street, checked in with, with Kilo Company. And they said, oh, you, you come off you know, your break on this date. Well, we go on our long break, our long cycle break then. So I ended up having 65 days off straight. They just said, hey, make sure you PT, you know, and then we'll see you in 65 days. And that's during that time is when I, my, I met my wife, Susan, and everything. You know, I came back and, and uh, before pickup, a couple weeks before, I got invited to a party with all the Kilo drill instructors. And this is where the world's, you know, there was a big shift in, in, in kind of like that Marine Corps camaraderie is, you know, I was kind of stupid in, in thinking that I was going to experience the same thing I experienced with, with the brotherhood and sisterhood I had at MP school. And then I roll up into this house party barbecue with a bunch of kilo drill instructors and senior drill instructors. And it's like, who the fuck are you? Who gives you the right to look at me? You're not going to shake my hand. You know, you're a boot fucking fourth hat who doesn't even work across the street. And that's kind of like where, you know, the old proverbial freaking mental hazing starts you know you're not good enough to talk to us you're not good enough to be a party you can see you know myself and the other two guys that came to my class we were just like really is this you know that's kind of interesting that this is actually going on put a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth you know uh because i was i was like highly motivated truly dedicated you know i wanted to go over there and do the job i wanted to go over there and be the drill instructor and i wanted to do the best that i could do and and i wanted to be part of the team but there was no team in the beginning um, so much so it was it was it was not enjoyable the first cycle you know three month cycle through training when I picked up I weighed about two twenty and after the first three months graduating the first cycle I, I weighed one hundred sixty nine pounds at graduation so that just kind of tells you how much you work yeah I, I I calculated we were about one hundred forty eight hours a week on our feet in front of the recruits just that first just during that first cycle. so. But, but it was successful after that, you know, and, and, you know, grew from there, learned a lot. I pushed six platoons, four, uh, four as, a, as a green belt drill instructor and two as a senior. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote myself into the position to be the chief over at AI and took over AIP for my last year there. And so uh, that was pretty much my legacy, 12 years, a few days in the Marine Corps, and, and that's that. You went, so after that, you went, didn't you go to Costa Rica? Is that right? Didn't you guys, didn't you guys pick up shop and wind up moving to Costa Rica? Yes. Uh, yeah, so uh, while we were in uh, and started dating, you know, we got really serious. I said, you know, I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm about to disappear. You know, I'll be in town, but I'm going to not have any time. And I really didn't have any time. And she waited for me and she was understanding and accepted uh, the situation I was in. And my is, you know, she's 100% peaceful, you know, a tree hugging, loving hippie type of woman. You know, she's peaceful yoga, peace, love. Here, I was like, you know, you can't get more polar opposite. We hit it off, and we clicked, and you know, we have always had some great dates and everything. But uh, yeah, she waited for me, and she was on board with everything. And then, uh, so what had happened was in 2004, 
she used to be a big wig in the gym industry. She was like corporate level, big wig, you know, six figures a year, drives a Beamer, all that crap. And, but she got tired of the bullshit that comes out of corporate. So she left. She just quit. Boom. Corporate. And uh, she wanted to do her own thing. And I said, well, you know, why don't you just open up your own yoga studio? So we started out with a very small location in 2004 and just the years grew out to be the largest yoga studio in Southern California and moved locations three times. We had a 4,000 birth location. And so we did that. When I ended up getting out of the core, I started in 2007. I taught martial arts because I'm a master in professional martial art called Kutsu. And I figured we master in that. And I've got six other first degree black belts and different. I've been practicing since I was like six years old. So I started teaching martial arts when I got out. She was doing, and we were kicking it. We were killing it. And so we had our businesses rocking and rolling. And then, um, you know, she does international yoga retreats. And so she was hosting the retreats every year in Costa Rica. And we joked around a little bit, like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we lived down here? Because, you know, if you've ever been Rica, it's like living in a fucking coast park down there. And uh, one day we did the decision while we were still upright and didn't have to here that we were just going to do it. And we had no rules at all and reduced down to the suitcase seat. Literally wiped clean everything. We had our suitcases and we had our two dogs at the time. And we, and we moved to Costa Rica. And we lived in a small village in, in Dominical Punta Arenas, uh, Costa Rica, on the Pacific side, right next to the beach. I admire that so much, man. Yeah. And it was not easy. I'll tell you that. There's no fucking convenience whatsoever down there. So, if you, I mean, it's not easy at all. Yeah. But, uh, I, I, just, I just admire it. Um, your whole story up to this point is incredible, man. I have so much admiration for it. And the times that we've talked, I mean... I learned something new every time. And uh, I, I, I'm like one of those kind of weird, like dreamers almost, you know, where I, I think about doing shit like that. Like, you know what? Yeah. Fuck it. I just want to go somewhere different and start over again, you know? And, and in some ways, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I kind of did the same thing. I mean, I stayed in country, but yeah, I mean, I have so much admiration for that. And, um, and just the life lessons that I'm sure you've brought, you know, and, and, and I can tell just even talking with you in the times that I've had the chance to talk with you, um, how impactful all this stuff has been. I just, you just, it just comes, it comes out of you. You know what I mean? It does bring along a certain amount of, I guess, maybe wisdom, whatever you call it, but kind of thought, you know, you know, what, what is it that we would be missing out on if we didn't take that leap and, and just do something different? And our, and our idea behind the whole thing was we would go live there for X amount of time, then pull chocks and go move to another country to experience. And we actually had it kind of set out that we were going to go from Costa Rica to India and to China because we had been, it's kind of funny, we actually had been to Wuhan, China before where all this coronavirus shit's come from. Yeah. But uh, we, we, we went and lived in the temples in China and trained, trained with the Taoist uh, martial art, a, a master monk, you know, 17th generation master Taoist monk, you know, and lived in the, in the monk temples to train in martial arts and stuff. And we're like, man, China's cool. I mean, China is not what, if you have never been to China, it's kind of like if there's two places you should ever visit in your life just to kind of open your eyes. One is India. You have to go to India, especially Delhi. Um, and the other part is, uh, is China because China is nothing what I was brought up to believe it was. Is it the largest communist country in the world? Yeah, it's the largest communist country in the world. But, and I know they've had a lot of bad history and, and pretty much every country has. But I'll tell you what I, I didn't see in China is I didn't see any hate against whites. You know, when we got there, we went into Shanghai and we stayed the night in Shanghai and then we flew from Shanghai to Wudangshan, you know, basically a Hubei province right outside of Wuhan. And we, we had to drive a couple of hours in a taxi to get to, to Wudang city, which was a small village city in the mountains. And it's like really center, like right in the middle of China. And when you get out there, there's no English influence. There's no American influence. Everything is in Mandarin. 
there's no American writing. There's no, and we're like, we're the only Americans there. And here I am, I'm, I'm tattooed to the extreme. I'm like 85% of my body's covered in tattoos and people don't even, it's like, oh, you know, they bow, they say hi, they smile, you know, there's no like judgment whatsoever. And I'm like, wow. And then here's the other thing. No, no homelessness. Didn't see any homeless people whatsoever. No obesity whatsoever. I mean, everyone looks really fit. Everyone's in really good shape. And the food that they eat is ultra clean. Mm-hmm. There's fast food restaurants in the middle of China. That's just, you know, everything's sold, you know, on the open market. They have all their, you know, vegetables and fruits and most of the stuff I've never seen before. Of course, they have some of the basics, you know, like cucumbers and pickles and things like that. But, I mean, carrots and things of that nature, but a really great place to visit, you know. So that was our intent was we were going to kind of like, you know, do the proverbial island hopping and just kind of move to different places, you know, Bali, a few places here, you know, Spain, and, and kind of just live our life being kind of nomadic. And that was the idea. But uh, unfortunately, my wife, uh, she fell ill and we had to get back to the States when we came back to the States, I didn't want to live in California and work. It was just too goddamn expensive and, you know, just too much weird shit going on. Yeah. And so she's originally from Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so we decided to go back there where she was born and raised, you know, kind of went full circle back from when she left. Cause she, she posted out when she was 18. Mm. She wanted to get the fuck out of Santa Fe cause she got a bad taste in her mouth, but we ended up going back there. And now it's pretty much where she wants to, to finish the rest of her life at is in her hometown. Yeah. That's, that's how we landed back there. And that's how we, that's how we met was because you're back in Santa Fe and you and I share the same job. Just yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, crazy, man. Your story is incredible, dude. I'm telling you, like when I, when I think about like, you know, obviously I see your name on emails or like, I think about some of the stories we've talked about or we were training together. Like you're like one of the, you're like the Dos Equis guy, man. You're, you're, literally like, <laughs> you're literally like in my mind, like one of the most interesting dudes I think I've ever come across. I mean, just all the, all, all the, the, the shit you've done um, is just, it's, I don't want to say it, it's not abnormal, but it's not necessarily normal, at least from the people that I've spent time with, right? Like most yeah. dudes like join the Marine Corps, they fucking do their thing and then they go home. Like that's not you. And that's, it doesn't sound like it's ever been you. And it's just really impressive. And I admire it. Um, I've, well, I've you know, learned so much. Yeah. I always, I always, you know, I just didn't want to, you know, th- I think, I'm the, I think we're all the same person that we were before we joined the Marine Corps, you know, and being a drill instructor, you see that, you know, with recruits, you see the transformation, you know, and that, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, personal pride in being a drill instructor because it's almost like you have your kids, you know, you're raising your kids right. and everything. And, and especially, you know, being a kilo hat and everything like that. And it's, 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 it stays with you, you know, and it took a long time to, to get a lot of that out of my system when I got out of the service, you know, especially, especially transition into civilian life from being a drill instructor was a little bit fucking weird. I'm sure. Um, Cause I, I mean, I was walking down, I'd go into restaurants and like, bitch, get one arm's distance, motherfucker. Who the fuck yeah. are you? you know? and, it, and it's like, it's, it's a natural response. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I always, you know, told myself, you know, that I didn't want to just, you know, follow a standard role that I always wanted to improve myself the best way that I could. You know, my wife pushed me as soon as I got out. She's like, you got a GI Bill, you need to use it, you know, go to school. And so I went to school. My, uh, you know, like I said, I, I was a high school dropout. I did do my GED. I did get a high school diploma. And then I went and got, um, I was actually able to pull two degrees from my GI Bill. I got a bachelor's of science in health and wellness. And I got a master's of science in public health education. Both of them, I was number one in my class. So, and so my first two college degrees, you know, are health science degrees. And then um, I had the idea in my head that, you know, I, I might want to go to law school and be a lawyer. Um, my wife will, will, will stand behind me 100% that I have litigation capabilities and I can argue 
you know, she doesn't like getting in an argument with me because it's like, I always make it to where she wins, but I can crush anybody in an argument. You know, I can, I, I bring out evidence like, where did you get that from? You know, it's like, bam, here you go. <laughs> but, uh, so I, you know, I took the LSAT and I went and, and I applied with University of New Mexico Law and they didn't accept me. You know, I didn't have the greatest LSAT score in the world because that fucking test is just I'm not a great test taker. And, you know, in all honesty, it was not, it wasn't an easy test, but it's just like, there's so much material. I don't read very fast, but you got to read so much shit. And then it's a time test and you only have a certain amount of time to answer these questions, which to me, they're just upside down and backwards. But, uh, you know, I didn't score bad. I scored like, you know, upper mid range, but I guess it still wasn't enough for UNM. But uh, at the same time, I had applied for a scholarship, you know, to go to school and it didn't work out. And then I kind of put it all aside. And then one day I got contacted by the scholarship society and like, hey, congratulations, you got a scholarship. Where do you want to go to school? I was like, no shit. So I ended up going to Arizona State University and I pulled a uh, master, master's in criminal justice with a graduate certification on the side in law enforcement administration. So, you know, I use that to kind of continue on the route of, you know, being in the law enforcement realm, you know, and moving into the job that I do now, yeah. you know, what we do, which it helps out a lot, you know, especially with the, the emphasis that I took, you know, on, on the side for my electives, you know, so, so there it is, you know, that, that kind of leads, that circles back all the way to the very beginning of the conversation about, you know, appearances and judgments is, you know, yeah, I'm the, you know, I got freaking tattoos all over. I got tattoos on my neck, you know, I had tattoos on my chin, you know, my hands and everything like that, fingers and toes and this, that, and the other. And, you know, people look at me and they're like, fuck, I look, I look like an outlaw biker, you know, and I ride a motorcycle. Yeah, I look like an outlaw biker. You do. But you know what? I have three college degrees, yeah. two master's degrees, you know, I'm a certified law enforcement officer in the state of New Mexico and the state of California. You know, I, I do. I, I used to be a senior criminal investigator for the district attorney's office in Santa Fe, you know, it's you know, military police, 12 years, drill instructor, all that good stuff. Military police instructor. I got, I got a five inch binder at home of every school certificate I've ever been through, you know, been through and done a lot, you know, been kind of like been there, done that, you know, the only, the only thing that kind of sucks is I never got the opportunity in, in my 12 years in the Marine Corps to go overseas, never got the opportunity to hit the sandbox or anything like that and really apply the skills that I used to teach and everything that, you know, in a way that kind of bums me out, you know, talking to a lot of my close friends were like, you know, it's a good thing you didn't go because of the shit that they're facing. And I'm like, yeah, you could say that, but you know, in my mind, I feel like I didn't really reach full fruition and, and do what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, I think that's a tough issue for a lot of people. Um, I was fortunate to go when I did go, not, not a whole lot was going on. So I share some of that sentiment. I mean, you know, my team performed well and we, we did what we were asked to do. Um, but I, I get it. And, you know, but still, I mean, what I always try to tell everyone is you're still, you're still 1%. And even, and if you really want to get down into it, you know, it's even, it's even smaller amount because there's so few Marines, but um, man, it's like so much more than what a lot of other people would have, would have done or could have done, you know? And I just try to always remember that. But yeah, I mean, know. I'll tell you what though, man, the way you shoot, I wouldn't, <laughs> they're, they're probably lucky you weren't over there. Yeah. I, I, you know, that's, I guess that's one really good thing I got from my father when I was young is as soon as I was able to walk, I was shooting, you know, and him being a former Marine and everything like that, you know, a Marine veteran and everything like that shooting just kind of ran in the family. It's like everyone had guns and she yeah. was just kind of interesting, you know, and, and I'll throw this out there because I, I have no problem with it. It's like, you know, look at Facebook. I love seeing all the, 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 the fucking liberal Democrat gun hating motherfuckers, you know, and I'm a liberal Democrat and I've got a shitload of fucking guns. You know, and that again, there, that leads to another stigma, another judgment is like, yeah. Hey, you know what? You know, I, I think with the, the six or seven or 800 friends that I have on Facebook that are Marines that I served with in some former capacity, either side by side, or I was their instructor, 
you know, they would kind of get that, that what they you know when the dog hears that funny sound and it's like, what, you're a fucking Democrat. How does that work? Yeah. Well, Cause you know what? I'm like, a, I guess I could consider it as I'm a, de- I'm a Kennedy Democrat. You know, I was raised in a different democratic lifestyle. Exactly. And I get, you know, I get this. I've always got the sense, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not the type of dude that's like, Hey, what's your political persuasion? I don't ask yeah. shit because I don't fucking care. But, um, and I've never cared, but I, I've definitely got the sense of that kind of vibe from you, but you've never been a, you like, I hope I don't ever come off as like rude to someone for my stance. I don't, I actually don't know what box people would put me in because most of the shit that I believe in, like in society would never fly on the conservative side. Um, yeah. and, and you and I have always had like solid discussions about whatever. And I don't feel like you've ever just, you're, you're not the type of dude that's going to just dig your heels into the sand and be like, you're a fucking idiot. You know, you, you'll, you'll present your case and you'll discuss your case like a man. You know, and it's usually, if not always, a good case. But you're not like I've never known you to be like weird about it. You know, like in some some people that I've come across, especially in what I'm trying to do now, um, some people just get hateful, man. But yeah, I, and that's that's the unfortunate part of where we're at in society now, and that's where the divisiveness has come in our country. And I, that's one of the things that I just I'm getting sick about is like you know, gone are the days that we used to be able to have a conversation. We used to be able to debate things. And a perfect example is when I met my wife. Yeah. I mean, like I said, she is a peacenik, you know, tree, you know, I, I hug trees too, you know, and I love trees, you know, I, I love trees they are pretty, you know, it's like, I love them, you know, it's like, you, you, but you're going to, you know, I understand that there's a reason we have to chop trees down. I'm not going to go tie myself to a tree to stop a tree coming down. Right. But it's, I, it bums me out that we have to burn fucking rainforest, you know, it's like shit like that. So, you know, I have a, I have a stance, but you know, I'm reasonable too, to the point to where, you know, and I always liked that. I think it was Vince Lombardi who said it, that it's a mark of an educated mind to be able to accept the opinion of another without accepting it totally as your own. You know, it's like I can talk to you and I can appreciate your your stance and your opinions. Right. Just the same way you can talk to me and appreciate mine and everything like that. And at the end of the day, we can still, you yeah. know, we're good. We're not enemies because you're a Republican and I'm a Democrat or you're a liberal or you're, a, you know, this or you're that. And I think that label is crushing our society. You know? So I learned this, I picked this up with you real quick when, when you and I were at Intac, we were training together and I noticed what kind of food you were eating. Uh-huh. And like, and people kind of asked you like, yo, what's up? And you're like, oh, I'm vegetarian. But that was it. Like you didn't go on this long ass diatribe about like this, that, or the other, or, like where you sit. You're like, yeah, I'm a vegetarian. Basically like whatever, this is me. This is what I do. But I, I mean, I've known people who would like immediately launch into these like tirades and stuff. And that like, wasn't you. And then I think someone asked you a question and then you started to like educate, like, well, actually yeah. this is me. This is how I eat. This is how I've always eaten. And like, you're a big man. You're a, you're a large guy, like in shape. And like, it destroys the idea that like vegans are like unhealthy or any of that thing. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, funny or anything like, like that. Yeah. You can, you can speak to this and I've talked to you about it a bunch and, and it's actually kind of led me on a path. I'm still sort of in the research phase. I'm cleaning certain things up in my diet and trying to be better, but I'm on this kind of journey now discovering kind of what I eat, where I get it from and all these things. But talk about, talk about that because it's interesting to hear it from you because I mean, you may have some kind of ideology and mixed with your diet, but you don't seem to push it on anyone. And that's what I love about it. So, um, I don't know. Talk, talk about that a little bit. Cause that's probably the most interesting thing I think I get from you. Yeah. So, um, but the thing is, uh, so I think it all stems from education. So when I met my wife, she was already, she was already a vegan when I met her. Um, the cool thing was that she didn't pressure me and, you know, or say anything, you know, here it is, you know, like I said, you know, my wife is like the greatest person I've ever known because she's so open and accepting, you know, you know, her compassion and her tolerance is just amazing. 
So yeah, she hooks up with this fucking tattooed fanatical Marine drill instructor. I was a smoker. I was a heavy drinker. I was a power drinker. And you know what? If I wasn't drinking a beer and chowing down a Jack in a box, freaking ultimate cheeseburger, Hey, there's something wrong. Or if I wasn't grabbing a carne asada burrito from Juan Bertos outside the, the North gate at Miramar or something like that, you know, it just was, it wasn't a normal day. But the big thing was, is that I, 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 as, as part of our relationship, as I always listened to what she did and I looked at what she read and, I, and everything, I started to educate myself. And it happened quickly where I started seeing that there was uh, an obvious health benefit to cleaner eating. Um, and back then, you know, we're talking like back in 2004, there wasn't a whole lot out there on, on vegan, meeting, or vegan eatings and stuff like, or, you know, what you would eat for as a, as a, as a vegan or whatever. I thought there for a second. But so as I educated myself, you know, I started making the transition for health reasons, um, stopped eating red meat, you know, but it wasn't just like a cold turkey type of thing. You know, I educated myself and started eating cleaner. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I'll say too, is that I'm not, I'm never going to be judgmental about being vegan or vegetarian or whatever or plant-based. It's just, you know, everyone has their, their choice to make. And, and I was born and raised in a meat and potato family where we had steak on the plate for just about every meal to include breakfast. So it's not like I'm going to be a hypocrite. And like, you know, if I sit down at the dinner table with you and you eat steak, I'm going to be like, Oh, you fucking sinner, you know, or anything like that. Right. It's just a choice that I made. And it's a choice that we both follow, you know, and, and there's, there's, it's dual sided, you know, part of it is for the health and part of it is, you know, because I just, uh, I've always been an animal lover. It's the way I was raised. And I really have, uh, you know, in my own mind, if I'm just that one other person who doesn't contribute to the way uh, cows or pigs or chickens are raised and slaughtered for the purposes of our food, that's just one less, you know, it's just one more person less that, that has to be done for that. Mm-hmm. And I know that a lot of companies, they do what they can do to, to make it the most, I guess, you know, quote unquote, humane it is possible to, to, to basically, you know, murder an animal for the purpose of food. The simple fact is that it is, it is, it is something that is, there is no such thing as, you know, there's no real humane way to kill something. It's, you're going to kill it. Yeah. You know, and I'll, and I'll use an, the idea or the angle of a hunter. You know, I used to be a hunter. I always, I always hunted with my bow. I never hunted with, um, never hunted with a rifle. I always hunted with a bow. And, you know, I always made it a little bit more of a challenge for me, you know. Um, and so it, you know, again, it's, again, it's not a, it's not a judgmental thing. You know, it's nothing bad. And I'm definitely not the end all expert. You know, the buck doesn't stop with me. I have the two health science degrees, which opened my eyes to a lot of things too. I did a lot of studies. I wrote a lot of papers. You know, I did a thesis on genetically modified organisms and things of that nature. And I think if I can offer anything to anyone who listens to this is, 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 you know what, you can do whatever the fuck you want. I mean, and that's the one thing that's nice about being an American, especially is you can do whatever you want. You can drink whatever you want. You can eat whatever you want. But, you know, one of the things that I notice is that, you know, over a certain amount of time is your body is going to pay the price for what you consume, you know, and the old adage, the old saying of you are what you eat. Yeah, it is really true. And if you, you can make a choice to either, uh, you know, feed the temple and, and feed the goodness, or you can feed the diseases that stem from what you eat. And we're running into this problem in our, in our nation nowadays with the, with, the, with the GMOs, with the genetically modified organisms or the bioengineered foods. Um, and you know, the, the increase in fast foods where the nutritional content just sucks ass, you know, high calorie, high fat, you know, high, high sugars, you know, things like that. And it's really causing a lot of problems. And one of my, one of my papers was based on, on the GMOs and how, 
you know, when a food is genetically modified, we lose the ability to for cells to absorb absorb the nutrients that are in that food. And whenever we have anything, and I'm not trying to insult anyone's intelligence whatsoever, it's just my take on it. A lot of it is my opinion based off of my knowledge from school and what I've learned growing up and what I've experienced growing up as an adult, being a vegetarian vegan for 16 years, is that when we eat shit and it's not quality food, even if, even if you eat meat, you can eat meat all you want, brother, but you go get the organic grass-fed stuff type of yeah. stuff. Make, make the cleaner choice. Because when you're consuming the toxins and you're consuming the antibiotics and you're consuming all that crap, it, it's like if you if you freaking drank CLP for 10 years, yeah, at right. some point in time, you're going to fucking get cancer. Yeah. And it's the same thing as we're hoarding our body, you know, we're just overloading our bodies with toxins and it's, it's not going to be a good thing in the end, you know? So, you know, I don't have the answers to all the questions, you know, and, and, and I could certainly provide guidance to anybody who would want to learn how to get onto a cleaner diet. The, the documentary that you had mentioned to me before, the uh, Game Changers, it's on Netflix, is a great, is a great yeah. documentary to watch. I know I've heard a lot of people are, ma- are making the change just from watching that. And that's not new science. That's old science. It's been around for a long time. Right. It's just, and now we have, you know, mixed martial artists and elite athletes and Tennessee Titans, you know, football team. We have all these, these people that are jumping on, on, on board with this and making the change. And I think people are starting to see that, yeah, a fucking football team like the Titans is almost the entire team is plant-based. And look, they almost made it to the Super Bowl this year. Right. And hey, yeah, they're elite athletes. And look at them. They're fucking yoked and they're ripped and they're strong and they're crazy. The strongest guy on the fucking planet with lifts the most weight. Yeah. You know, he's a vegan. Look at our animal kingdom. You know, silverback gorilla is like the meanest, strongest, biggest land-based animal that there is. And he eats leaves. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, right. so, so that's actually like, that's an eye-opening argument. If people could just put wrap their head around that for a second. You know, and, and it's even mentioned in that documentary, Game Changers. So, so personally, the journey that I kind of went on was I actually saw it first through Joe Rogan's podcast, and they were knocking. Yeah. And, and because they were knocking it so bad, I'm like, you know what, I got to watch this. So then I watched it, and then I watched they, – they brought him back and did like a counter. And I'm like, oh, man, actually, this guy is really smart. He actually knows how to read the data that's been presented to him. And he, and he, and he made it some really, really excellent points. And, um, and I'm, I'm where you said. I'm, so I can't – I haven't – I don't want to say I can't but I, I haven't got rid of meat altogether, but we're definitely trying to find the better quality meats and, and source it more, eat it less. And when we do eat it, we eat it with a lot of greens. So that's kind of, yeah. that's where I'm trying to start. Um, but yeah, that documentary was pretty incredible, man. And, and, and the thing is like, and, and even, even the guy James said, like vegans sometimes are their own worst enemy. And, and I have a hard time just with ideological, like digging your heels in the sand and be like, nope, I'm a vegan. You're a horrible human being if you're not. Yeah. And a lot of people do that. And that's unfortunate because when they do stuff like that, they turn off so many people. And, and when, I talk yeah. to you, when I talk to you about this and how you live and how you eat and when I see you, you don't seem to me to be someone who, who doesn't eat meat. You just don't because you're, health, you're big, you're healthy. You, it, you know, and I would assume, well, vegetarians probably not getting enough protein. That's an that's a assumption a lot of people have. You've changed all that you know, just in the times that we've talked and then watching some of these documentaries and things. And like I said, I, I don't know personally how far away from meat I can get, but I definitely want to clean it up as best I can and, and just try to do better. And you know, like I keep chickens and different things. So there's definitely some other um, sources of protein that I, I don't know that I, I would be willing to just 
completely walk away from, but I want to do better for sure. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I, I don't think that anybody ha- thinks that they have to be, they have to completely change their entire lifestyle and diet just to be better. In my opinion, you know, based off of my knowledge, the schooling that I've had and what I've seen in the world today, I think that if you, if you just make a valiant effort just to clean up a couple of things, it, that in itself is going to go a long way. It's already worked for me. You, you, can, you can have a 1982 Honda Civic, you know, it's an old car. But if you change the oil and put new tires on it, it's going to take you a long way. Right. If you look at our body the same way, it's kind of like if we just take care of a little bit of it, it's a lot better than not taking care of any of it at all. Right. You know, I, I even go so far to say this. Look, if you're going to fucking eat donuts, go get Krispy Kremes because they're probably the best of the best that's out there. You know what I mean? That's my opinion. You, you know, instead of buying a donut from Albertsons or something like that, you know, go get something that's a little bit more quality. Yeah. And I think that's what we need to look at, too, is 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 is. You know, don't start so much with thinking you have to change what you eat, change the quality of what you eat. You can still eat the same things, but start with that. And that's the easiest way to start putting yourself on a track to eating cleaner, eating healthier, eating better. Right. You know, if you eat meat, get the, get the, you know, the free range organic, you know, no hormone stuff. Same thing with chicken, same thing with pork, same thing with the fish, you know, everything like that. But you definitely got to start adding, you know, the fruits and vegetables in there. The thing about protein, I'll say, is, you know, I usually get that question. I had a, I was working in the backyard one day and I had my shirt off and someone was ringing my doorbell and I went up and it was one of those guys cruising around the truck that sells the Omaha steaks. And he's like, hey, you know, I got a case of steaks on sale. Just coming to see by in the neighborhood if you wanted to buy them. I was like, sorry, bro, I'm a vegetarian. And he kind of looked me up and down. He's like, how, where do you get your protein? How do you, how are you so big and you're a vegetarian? And I'm like, right. well, do you want to, do you want to have the conversation? And, you know, and he's like, no, well, have a nice day. And I'm like, well, you know, and that's the biggest thing is that sometimes people will ask me, you know, and that happens pretty much every time. Oh, you're a vegetarian. Where do you get your protein? A lot of times my response would be, well, do, do you know how much protein you're supposed to consume for your weight? Mm-hmm. And then I'll get the trial look, you know, or I'll get the deer in the headlights. Like, no, I don't. I was like, well, because we've been, you know, pretty much, brainwashed into thinking that we have to consume protein, protein, protein. Commercials on TV when we were kids, the milk advisory board saying we have to eat cheese and drink milk to get the calcium because it's the only place in the world we can get calcium from or, you know, the beef advisory board because you have to have your protein and like that. But just about every fruit and vegetable, with the exception of citrus and grapes and a couple other things, has some level of protein in it. So much so that as a vegetarian, just the fruits and vegetables I eat on a daily basis exceeds the daily amount of protein I need to eat. Right. And what happens when you exceed your protein amount? Excessive protein gets stored as fat. So, you know, and then you just look at the quality of the protein. Again, I'll go back to the silverback gorilla. I don't think that the silverback gorilla goes and hits the fucking gym and does squats and freaking presses and all that shit. But the damn thing is a muscle beast. Right. So how does that work? You know, so, but again, you know. There's a lot to be said for that, man. That's a fair argument. And uh, yeah. that can open and maybe change the, uh, scrape some of the layer of nope. You know, uh, like everybody's got these layers of nope. And, and I, yeah. I, I used to have that too. I was like, uh-uh, no way, no way. Uh, and I'm just not there anymore, man. Like I've done the crash diets, dude. Like I've, I've fluctuated in weight really bad. Like for me, um, some of the food issues that I have are more a depression thing. So I, I have yeah. to work on the depression stuff, but now that now I'm actually, I've, I've got myself to a place where I'm a little more excited about trying to eat cleaner and eat better and, and do um, just be better in that way. Right? Like when you can tell yourself, Hey, I'm being, I'm battling here. I'm trying to be better um, in this one area of my life. It just, it cascades into a lot of other things. And, and actually we talked a little bit before I went to the Philippines and then I went to the Philippines and, and like you said, in China, it's all on the open market. Like, 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, they consume meat and they do all these things, but it's literally, it's like, it's, it's like, it's the cleanest meat you can get. Like, yeah. I mean, it's incredible. And, and I, it makes you think like, we are so far gone from that, man. Like our society is so far removed from that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah the, gotta, old, the, old farm, the old farm to table is like non-existent anymore. Yeah. And I love like, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested in a lot of like buy local, eat local movements that are going on. I mean, it's crazy to think that they're movements because it wasn't that long ago where that was kind of what our country was based on. And I'm yeah. focused a lot on that kind of stuff. I mean, and I think it's going to come back around. And if, if this whole coronavirus says anything, like look at our supply chains, like we're vulnerable, man. And, yeah. uh, and, and people need to wake up to that. And, and obviously, and, and honestly, like looking at what you eat, where it comes from, how you get it, that's a good start. And you'll realize like, man, we could, we need to bring some of this home. We need to bring some of this back. Yeah. It was an eye opening experience. And I, I really appreciate what you said about China because I, I went to the open market in the Philippines where they're, they're slicing, you know, all this stuff right there. They're, they're processing fish right there. It, I mean, it, and it, you, a lot of people might have the idea that that would be like a disgusting place. I mean, yeah. while they're butchering all this meat and, and they're prepping all these foods and vegetables all throughout the market, it, it wasn't disgusting. It wasn't, didn't smell bad. It was like the fresh. Yeah, go, go take a tour of a slaughterhouse. I've done it. Oh, I'm go, sure, I'm go sure take awesome. a tour of a, of a chicken broiler, you know, where they raise all the chickens. Go take a tour of that. And that's right. not disgusting. It's a little bit of a different world, you know, because you don't see that. And you don't live it every day. Right. But I hear you. So no, I, do need to wrap up, though. I, I do need to wrap up, though, brother. And I want to continue this topic, if we could, another time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll get you back on, man. We'll do another one. All right, cool. All right, bro. I'll talk to you. All right, all right bye.